Yo, welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, that is JB3. And we've been doing a lot of soul searching as of late, just a lot of reflection. I think part of that is stemming from being in therapy, but I think it really goes to show the power of relationships and interactions. And so lately I've been really thinking about how I show up in spaces where I may not be the... uh, dominant group or in spaces where I might be a part of I know we've used the term target group in the past I don't I don't necessarily like that but been thinking about how I show up in these spaces and then when I'm in the privilege group how I show up and so I've been really mindful of how I take up space because I'll be in meetings with others or meetings with with black women in particular that that's who I, I tend to think about Duh. And I want to make sure that I'm not the loudest voice in the room. And I want to make sure that I'm not infringing on one's ability to participate in meetings because I've seen it happen far too often. And I also don't want to be someone who stands by as just like, yeah, I'm I'm down for everybody. I'm down for, for, for black women. I'll make sure they have exactly what they need. And then I don't follow up because sure, people go on to say, yeah, believe women because something happened in the media or something grabbed enough attention where they felt like they needed to respond, but then they don't follow up with the action. And that's exactly what today's episode is about. We're going to talk about performative allyship. And so when people get out there and they start talking about, yeah, I'm doing the work, right? Are you, are you really, let's talk about that. Like, are you really doing the work? Are you getting in the way? Because there's a, there's a clear distinction because we get out there and we start uh, patrolling and I'm using that word intentionally. And we start to actually stifle progress when we become performative allies because our advocacy is empty. And what I want to drive home before we we get into the episode is that there's far too many causes out there that already have people leading to address. And then a white person, let's just be upfront, gets in the way and decides that that's their new cause for the day. And that's not doing the work, y'all. It's not. It's not at all. It is damaging, Right especially when resources have already been committed, people have already started doing the transformative work, making connections, building power. And then you get someone who wants to be the face for the moment. And it's it's just, that's not where it's at. And so today on the pod, we're going to hear from Deja Rollins, who I met through social media after I watched her TED Talk, where she just makes it plain. I mean, she just keeps it a buck. And I've I've actually manifested this episode two years ago because I was I was gonna do it solo and I was gonna call it Friend or Foe 20. But as we've made it to 2022, I still wanna keep the Jay-Z theme. And so today's episode, Who You Wit, features Deja Rollins, who is all about communications, the way that we show up and we interact in digital spaces, but also how social media plays a role in the way that black people 
have response emotionally. But you don't need me to do the introduction because she does it wonderfully herself. I would love to introduce you all to Deja Rollins. Deja. Oh, well, yeah. First, James, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity to get to uh, just kind of share, spread awareness, raise consciousness uh, on this specific topic as I'm as I'm learning about it myself. Right. Um, but I'm a second year doctoral student and fellow uh, as well as instructor at the uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I specifically study mediated communication and technology but I've got this emphasis on race and like, so looking at blackness and identity formation. Uh, more recently, uh, I've been coming across some literature and scholarship that looks at this idea of emotion in media. And so what emotion do you carry with you as you decide to engage in media? And after you are done, what emotion do you, you leave with? And so playing around with that, um, you asked where I'm from. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, Triple D. Go Cowboys. <laughs> so my professional uh, life in broadcast media started uh, in undergrad, actually, uh, around 19. I was living in Tyler, Texas. And so there I worked as a radio host for several years uh, before transitioning into television news producing and reporting. And so, um, you know, again, I got my bachelor's at UT Tyler in East Texas in mass communication and journalism and uh, moved back home to Dallas, Texas and got my master's degree there in emerging media and communication. And so I've kind of had this, you know, this foundation of looking at media, studying media, but also having that real live experience of being engaged in media. Um. You know, it's really interesting. You mentioned the, the emotion that comes with, you know, being active in that way, because in one of, one of my roles professionally, there's a lot of media interaction and yeah. I tend to shy away from it because I'm like, I don't. I don't know. Like, I, I just haven't been trained, I guess, to, to go in front of the media because I'm always anticipating them asking me something that they didn't cover beforehand. Right, right. Like, I need a warning. I yeah. need to know. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> I totally, I totally get it. Uh, and it's, I guess, when we look at emotion and media, it's an area that is understudied. We look at a lot of the cognitive and psychological processes that we go through when we're engaged in media. But um, there's little research looking at emotion in, you know, media or social media, you know, uh, and so I'm interested in looking at that and more specifically black people and what increases our stress, what reduces our stress when we're engaged in media and things like that. So um, that's something that I'm, I'm thinking about doing and you asked what I was currently working on. And so I've got at the moment, James, like three projects, um, one that's looking at race and materialism and the effects in rap music, streaming services and consumption, teens and YouTube and racial representations. How does that differ from traditional media? Is it better, is it worse? Since there's not these industry producers and execs uh, that are behind uh, the content on YouTube. Uh, another project looking at the objectivity and credibility of black women who wear their natural hair mm. in TV news. So really kind of focusing on media, be it traditional more so emerging and social media and the way uh, black people operate in these spaces. You know, I'm, I'm not surprised by it at all. Just thinking about the, the crown act and the yeah. way that people represent themselves, right? Like I, I'm, so this is a complete tangent. I started growing my hair during the pandemic, right? Because my barber was closed. <laughs> and now I'm like, this is a part of who I am. And so I, I love getting on 
the zoom and I have to turn off the the blur background because I I want people to see like all this hair, like all the, yeah. all this 4C hair. I need y'all to see yeah. it because it's a part of who I am. And it's unfortunate that in so many cases we've been taught or trained to like not be proud of that, to, to yeah. hide it. Yeah. And, you know, James, I think um, in, in doing work, looking at uh, black hair and television, uh, I stumbled across some work that kind of discussed that, you know, a lot of us haven't, you know, especially black women, we weren't even introduced to our real hair mm. until later in life and social media played a role in that. So again, bringing it back to media, right? So if you look at traditional media, you have these images and depictions of what European beauty standards are, right. black women with wigs and straight hair. And so then you get digital media and social media, and now we can create our own content. We can create and speak on our own realities. And you're seeing black women learn, be it on YouTube or on private Facebook groups, how to take care of their hair, what products to use. And so it's a beautiful thing, um, thing come to life. I, I love it. I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. So before we jump into the, the heavier stuff, I, you know, I've got a lighthearted question because I was looking through your Twitter and <laughs> you mentioned that you were hitting your students with that good old 80s jam session. And when I looked at the playlist, this is my traditional Saturday morning. I'm about to do some deep cleaning at the house. Yes. Playlist, yes. Right. <laughs> it's all, I'm going to spare what songs are listed, but I would love for you to let me know maybe three or four songs that are the, the must listen to playlist tracks. So are we talking about on my eighties playlist or are we talking about just in general? Cause there's a difference. No, I hear that. I hear that. Give me the eighties. And so I can prepare to get into the cleaning mindset for this weekend. Okay. I got you. We'll do, we'll do cleaning. You'll do cleaning out there. I'll do cleaning out here. So I feel like you gotta have a slave. Right. So I just I love slave watching you. Watching you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's I mean, I used to listen to that in the car as a kid. My dad would pick me up from school. Um, and I used to love riding in his Corvette because you know I felt fancy and you know, I'm in a car with my daddy, and he would play watching you. And even to this day, it's my son's favorite song that was introduced to him by my father. And so you gotta have slave on the playlist. Okay. Um, you gotta have Stevie. You gotta have Stevie on the playlist. If you're not, you're sleeping. Like, why don't you have Stevie Wonder on your playlist? Um, he transcends decades. So you gotta have Stevie Wonder. Um, Funkadelic, the Gap Band. I mean, anybody that's funky, upbeat, you know, that's gonna make you feel something, you know? <laughs> you know, I miss bands, like bands. Like that, that was a thing and I, I wish you know, I could have had like a live Earth, Wind, and Fire experience like that. That just would have been so dope. Like all yep. those pieces coming together. And when you mentioned Stevie, so I talk about having a pre-presentation ritual. There's two okay. songs that I listen to before I present at any given time. Okay, and what is it? <laughs> so I'm, I'm sharing my secrets now. So one is Body and Soul by Anita Baker because okay. the, the ranges that she goes through and you know I can't sing I'll just put that out there but I feel like it helps me to like warm up my vocal cords for whatever I'm about to present okay so you actually do the singing along oh, yeah yeah her. I got to and I got to be loud I got to be okay. loud and obnoxious about it okay okay the other song is if you really love me by Stevie Wonder and it's so short 
Yeah. Just yeah. to the point. Yeah, and, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. But no, when I saw that you you had the 80s jams, I'm like, you know what? We, we got to talk about it real quick. Even if, you know, it takes a minute before we get into the allyship discussion, we right. got to honor the music that made us, right? Got to honor the greats. Yeah. Got to honor them. All right. So we got that on our system. Let's talk about allyship. And so right. I think it's good for us to, to level set the conversation by just going right at it. You know, how do you go about defining ally or allyship? Okay, so one thing I like to preface whenever I talk about allyship is, is two things. So I want to just kind of throw this out there, James, is that when I speak on allyship, I'm speaking on allyship as it pertains to white people who say they want to be the change, who say they, they see the disparities and the injustices and who, who also show up on our timelines and our classrooms and our staff meetings. That's what I'm speaking on. And I'm, I'm also very like adamant about being clear about the fact that I'm not asking white people for anything. Like I'm instead contributing to a long held discussion about the responsibilities of white people who say, oh, I don't see color, um, which is you know problematic in itself, but who say that they are about that allyship life. So I just wanna make that clear before going into any type of depth of discussion about allyship, about where my position is on it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but if we're talking about defining allyship, um, in my opinion, and, and, and based on some of the work that's, that's out there, allyship is this constant act of, and, and constant is key there, right? This constant act of uniting yourself with another person or group to promote this common interest right? in all the ways that you are capable, not just one, not just on some days of the calendar, 24 seven around the clock with all of the ways that you're capable. So I, I think we were talking earlier um, before we went, went live about the fact that, you know, this term ally and the language surrounding it it's become so watered down over the years because of all of the many movements and the accessibility through digital and social media uh, to engage with those movements. So now anyone can be an ally to any group that has a hashtag or by slapping a sticker on their laptop or their bumper of their car or you know, whatever. It's it's you're an ally, right? There's a lot of marginalized and oppressed groups who are able to you know, speak on their marginalization through social and digital media, which I think is great. But now everybody says that they're an ally for every group. And it's kind of watering down the seriousness and the work that is required for one to be not just an ally verbally, but like really putting your feet on the ground and doing that work. You know what I'm saying? I feel like people miss that, right? Like they, yeah. you know, like you said, they they follow the trend, they follow the hashtag, they find themselves like, oh, you know, I have a black friend, <laughs> and therefore yeah. I'm an ally. Yeah. It's like, oh <laughs> no, that that means absolutely nothing to this movement. Nothing, nothing. And, and especially when you you use the movement to center the conversation, like movement is an action. Like whether we're talking about community organizing, we're talking about full blown advocacy. Right. How are you moving? How are you in motion? I think that's something that we can always think about if you're trying to call yourself an ally. Yes, I totally agree. It's this, there's this, um, there's this term that I was introduced to by one of my professor called uh, narcotizing dysfunction. 
right? And and so what it means is that um, like going online and saying that you uh, are a part of the movement or that you're an ally takes the place of the action that is uh, required to be an ally. Now, narcotizing expansion isn't necessarily associated with allyship, but it's when words take the place of action. I think I'm getting that right. I might need to double check that, but but for those that are listening, look it up. Narcotizing dysfunction is when you're not doing the action, but the fact that you said you're going to do it or the fact that you spoke about it takes the place of the required action uh, that is needed to get things done. In limited academic terms, I, I'm just calling that blowing smoke, right? Like yeah. you, you, there we go. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Your your lips just moving. That's all. Mm-hmm. Mm, flapping gums. Yeah. So in, in the context that you described it, where we're centering race here, who exactly is or can be an ally? I think that an ally is anyone. I mean, but again, I, I said that I was talking about white people. So I want to be clear. White folks who acknowledges their privilege and positionality, and they use that to help resist and raise awareness through the action that we're talking about, James, to kind of like continue pushing the needle on the current state of injustices that Black folks face uh, legally, uh, economically, socially, in this country, and all over the world. Now, again, I'm focusing on white people. And I think a lot of this, James, came from the summer of 2020 during Mm -hmm. the passing of our brother, George Floyd. We saw a lot of white people and we saw a lot of organizations who were saying, oh, this is what we're going to do. This is, I see you, I hear you, I feel you. I, and it's quiet as hell now. Where are those same people? Where are those same organizations? You know, um, and so I think you can be an ally if you take your words and you don't even have to use words. If you, as my friends would say, if you decide to be about that action, you know, be about moving and a part of the physical movement, you know, in any capacity. We're thinking about allies and how exactly should they show up? Like when you decide that I'm going to be about that action, like I'm, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be present. What are my responsibilities when I decide to become an ally? Oh my gosh. I, I'm so glad you asked this question because this is, this is where people get lost, right? Um, consistency, James. What should we expect? What is your responsibility? Consistency. Not just when one of us becomes a headline on the news or on the front paper or, you know, when one of us dies from police brutality, consistently being in motion, doing the work with the people you say that you are supporting. Um, I think that is key when you think about allyship, consistency, um, speaking up when necessary, but also knowing when to sit back and listen, uh-huh. right? You, you white people, I'm talking, you, you oftentimes get the opportunity to speak up, to stand up, to be in the front of the room. You have to know when to be quiet, when to listen, because there's a lot that can be learned. There's a lot of knowledge that you can gain when you sit back and listen to a group of people who you have no knowledge of their uh, real life day-to-day experiences. I think standing up when your positionality affords you the privilege of being heard, but also 
sitting this one out when opportunities that come in abundance for you could be helpful to someone from the group you claim to support. I remember I was in, um, I was listening to this panel, right? And it was a, this, this happened, I think it was last semester. I was in, in this kind of panel and um, it was supposed to be about black authors or, you know, black people within academia and, and, and work in media. And I'm okay with white people doing black work to an extent, right? But there was this white woman who was speaking about her book on a panel of people of color. And I felt like when she was presented that opportunity, she could have said, you know what? I know another black scholar who would be great on this panel. I'm gonna sit this one out. But she took it as an opportunity to add a CV line, but also promote her book. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's an opportunity when you are truly an ally, especially one who calls yourself doing black work, where you can say there's someone else, there's another black woman or another black man or, an, or whoever that would, that would benefit from this CV line or from this opportunity to, to discuss their work. I'm gonna sit this one out. So standing up when, you're, when your positionality affords you the privilege of being heard, but knowing when to sit out. I think calling out racist and insensitive friends, colleagues and family is really key, really key and critical uh, without that fear of being ostracized. A lot of times you got those, um, those people who they come around you and they're, they're doing the talk, they're, they're moving their lips, they're, they're doing this, they're doing that. But then when they get surrounded with people who look like them, they're not as vocal. You know, they don't have as much to say. So being, that takes me back, consistent in your position as an ally, despite who you're around, whether it's your grandmother, your uncle, your, your supervisor, being confident enough to stand up and call out injustices or, you know, uh, outright racist, you know, remarks in, in action. Um, you know, and sometimes there's people, James, that like to work silently behind the scenes. And I'm with that because you don't always have to be loud to be effective. And I think that that's important to know, too. Some people, you know, I, I do have an issue with silence, right? Because silence can be problematic. But if you are going to be about action, I think it's, it's something to say about being silent and doing the work behind the scenes. You don't have to be vocal all the time. It may not be your thing. You know, and, and donating locally. A lot of times people say, well, I, I donated to Black Lives Matter or I donated to the NAACP, but what about those local chapters? What about the local um, grassroots orgs in your community that need funding and that need help? But see, that requires research. But if you're an ally, you don't mind putting in that extra work to find out what organizations and grassroots orgs are in your state, in your community, in your neighborhood that you can be of service and beneficial to. That's my long-winded answer of how allies can show up and what we should expect from them. I mean, at this point, what what do we have left to record? You didn't you didn't lay it all out there. I think <laughs> you know, there's so many examples of I see of me seeing people who identify as allies yeah. misrepresenting themselves, right? Like being mm. in meetings where, you know, you talk about Black Lives Matter all on social media, but then we get into professional settings and you won't let a Black person speak, right? Like mm. you're taking up all of the space within the room and we're typically talking about marginalized communities and right. their folks go 
white folks go talking yeah. about this is the solution. It's like, how do you know? You know, how do you understand navigating or traversing through this particular environment when you've never done it? You've never right. had to do it. If you did it, your experience would be completely different because of the privileges you have. Yet you call yourself an ally and won't even allow the black people in the room to talk. And that is the worst. I've been in situations like that where it's almost James, like they're trying to convince themselves or trying right. to convince other people in the room that like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm about it. And I believe it's like, sit back and be quiet and, and pull out your pen and pad or your laptop and take some notes on what's being said and what's not being said, right? Mm -hmm. Listen, because there's beauty in that as well. And I think that, you know, white people just get so comfortable or they're just so used to being able to utilize their power and privilege that they don't know when to turn it off. And here you are taking up space in a meeting where you should really be sitting and, and, and listening to how you can better serve this group you publicly claim to support. Right, right. So let's dig deeper, uh, another layer, right? Because this yeah. is what, what helped me to actually find you on social media is you were talking about performative allyship. So yeah. one, I think it would be helpful to kind of define it, but also thinking about it from someone who's observing, is there like a formula for when we believe allyship is performative? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a specific formula per se, but when you, you know it when you see it, mm. right? And you can tell when it's performative. Um, and so I would say it looks like this, or it sounds like this is, I wanna support and I wanna stand in solidarity with you or your group, but only if I don't lose anything in the process or my group doesn't lose anything or have to sacrifice anything in the process. That's not allyship, that's conditionality, right? And so you've got performative allies who, you know, say one thing, but if it requires them to lose their seat on a panel, oh, oh, wait, I don't know if I'm an ally to that extreme. Or, you know, they will put up a hashtag and, and delete a post, or when something is trending, they're talking about it heavily, or they're, you know, you see them, they're really visible, but then when the, when the headlines start to fade, then they fade along with it. Going back to a lack of consistency, you can tell when someone is not truly an ally, when you don't consistently seeing them doing the work, talking about the work, when it's conditional, when it's trendy, when it's when they're going to benefit by getting some likes or retweets, or it's going to um, profit them in some way. And so I, I that is kind of what I, I think I've noticed um, as it relates to performative allyship. And you've got the I'm a, I want to say this too, James. You've got those. It's like it's like I talked about it in my TEDx talk, right? You've got the two types of performative allies: those who are like genuinely, you know. They, they, they really want to be an ally. They just don't know how, right? They just, they've been white for so long and they've been around people who haven't talked to them about these things, but they want to do better. They see that they need to do better and they're actively trying to do better, but they don't know how they can best be of service, which to an extent, I feel like some of that is not an excuse, but those, there's that group of, of, of performative allies where I, I, this is just all that I know how to do. 
And then you've got the group who are strictly doing it for the reward. How do I benefit by sharing this, by saying this? How does it, how does it feed my ego or my, my self-presentation online or in this space? Uh, and you see it, you know, in organizations or within the academy, you know, last summer, James, when we had broad statements being everywhere. posted everywhere, everybody had a Black Lives Matter poster, everybody had statements on their websites, companies and organizations, they were putting out, uh, you know, emails and statements with goals that weren't measurable, uh, and they were only up temporarily. You know, you see this in the academy and in organizations where they add a diversity, equity, and inclusion, this DEI position without adequate funding or, or resources to do impactful work. These land acknowledgments that, you know, eh, I have mixed feelings about them, but it's like, don't just tell me you sitting on my land. Give me my shit back. You know, <laughs> give it back. You're just going to sit there and be like, yeah, uh, we just want to acknowledge that we on stolen land. And, uh, moving right along right right you know like nah like let's if you're not gonna give it back and you're not actively working towards doing something of that nature let's just not talk about it because we already know you know juneteenth oh my gosh it's a federal holiday that now white people get the benefit from you get the benefit on my black holiday i feel some type of way about that <laughs> no i me and uh, me and one of my my homies we did a uh an ig live on that and just yeah. describing it as you know it's more than a day off right like this right. was, it was a moment for us to recognize a pivotal moment in our history. I just see it as y'all getting a day off to go buy some dumb shit that don't really matter. You know, and, and it's performative as it relates to like the government and the Biden administration, like making it. And so I, I try not to be a pessimist, right? But sometimes like when we start talking about like the realities of blackness in this country, it's hard not to be, you know, frustrated or upset or just call shit like it is. You know, we've been asking for all type of reforms and, and, and things of this nature, but you think you're going to keep me quiet by saying, oh, well, here's Juneteenth. It's a federal holiday now. Look, whether you made it a federal holiday or not, I was going to celebrate it regardless. Right, right. It's I didn't a holiday it a federal holiday. I was going to celebrate Juneteenth regardless. Now I've got other non-Black groups that get a day off of work on, on a day that's supposed to be about me and my group and our, you know, breaking free. Not everybody free on Juneteenth, you know? So anyway, I, I said that to say I'm getting off track, but you know, those in my opinion are performances. You're performing your allyship. Uh, you know, companies, I, I talked about this too in a TED talk, changing external imaging and branding, but you leaving like problematic and internal policies and procedures in place at your organization or corporation. And people, let's just put the, put the people in there too. <laughs> and people, and people. Like I said, okay, you take Aunt Jamama off the shelves, but you're not changing or doing anything about the racist hiring manager at your company. How does that benefit me? I ain't had no issue with Aunt Jamama. You know, matter of fact, I'm gonna go pick up some Aunt Jamama pancakes. <laughs> what I really want you to do is I want you to fire Karen, right? Who's, you know, not hiring black women or black men or other minority groups based on her own prejudice and, and, and disbeliefs or I just, you know, mm, you know. So those are some of the ways organizationally that we see performative allyship. And personally, you see people, it's the phrases and the hashtags on your, on, and, you know, the black fists in your bios and tweets and Facebook and social media posts. And it's stopping there. Like we talked about earlier, taking up space in meetings and trying to convince yourself 
and others that you're down for the cause and acting one way in front of this group you claim to support. But then when the cameras are off or when you're in a different environment, all that go out the window. You know, when you're around your white colleagues and friends and in and, and social groups. So, you know, it, it's just a lot. It's a lot that we've been able to sit back and pick up on and it's been highlighted and it's been magnified, especially since the death of George Floyd, our brother this past summer of 2020. We saw it everywhere. This is a, a very poor transition, but I, I do want to point out that my son loves um, Jemima Server. Like I haven't yeah. gotten to a point where I can like change the name. I think it's Pearl Milling Company now, but yeah, that's what it is now. Yeah, it's like oh, you know, it's, it's Aunt Jemima, but that that's yeah. neither here nor there. But you you bring up the the point in performative, right? Like it, it's what have you changed aside from the way that you display yourself externally? Yeah. Like what have you done as far as internal work? And so I I come from a, a macro social work background, and okay. so I'm thinking about organizations. What have you done internally? to assess the ways that you're performing here. And then right. even at a micro level, thinking individually, how have you assessed the way that I'm showing up in these spaces? And if yeah. you haven't started that, don't call yourself an ally. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you're like an ally in training or something, I, I don't know. Or maybe you're nothing, maybe you're just you. And that's okay. I'd much rather you be silent you know, in doing nothing than to be loud in doing nothing, you know? But what's frustrating is when you see all of these people who are saying, and they, it's like, oh, they see it, they see it, finally, waha. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, what, what, where did you go? What, hey, hey, can we follow up on those goals? How are we looking on those goals that you sent out in that email last year? Where are we, where are we looking at on that? You don't have no update, no update on any of that. So we got a lot of work to do, but I think a part of um, a large part of this process is calling it out when you see it, uh -huh. despite whatever consequences may come from it. If you see somebody performing one way or not being consistent in what they're saying or what they're you know doing, call it out right there on the carpet. You know, make them uncomfortable, kind of like people been doing Karens. Call it out right there. And see and see and see how they respond, you know. You've you've mentioned part of this, but I, I want to keep going around some of the consequences of performing yeah. allyship. You know what happens to the movements? What happens to the organizations? Maybe we, what happens to the individual when everything that they're doing is rooted in this performative nature? Uh, what happens to the individual that's performing the performative allyship? Yep. Is that yep. what you're saying? I mean, you know what, James? Nothing. Because they get the privilege of being able to do nothing. So nothing happens to the person that performs the allyship because it's typically someone not part of a marginalized group that gets to decide when they want to put in the work. You following me? Oh, yeah. So, Nothing happens to them. Now, what happens to us, what happens to the marginalized group is this perpetuation of this possessive investment in whiteness. And so um, George Lippitz, American and Black Studies professor, uh, he's got this book he wrote in 98, you know, titled, you know, The Possessive Investment in Whiteness. And he argues in that piece that public policy and private prejudice, if that's not checked or addressed or actively combated, 
it works together to create this possessive investment in whiteness that's responsible for racialized hierarchies in our society. So when white people whose responsibility it is, who say that they're about that life, who claim that they're an ally, who say they wanna do the work, when they don't do the work that they claim they are uh, passionate about doing, when they don't support the group that they claim, these are your words, not mine. You said you were an ally. I'm not forcing you to be anything. When you don't put in the work, when you don't call out people, when you don't move with the movement, you're contributing to this perpetuation of this possessive investment in whiteness. And so it, it makes me think about um, civil rights professor Cheryl Harris. She highlights uh, what she calls whiteness as property in a book she wrote in 1993. And so she's basically saying there that, you know, literally your proximity to whiteness determined whether or not you were property, right? And so whiteness was initially constructed as a form of racial identity, but evolved into a form of property over time, historically and is presently acknowledged and protected not only in American law, but we see it in all forms of American society. So when you don't do the work, you're basically contributing to whiteness being at the top of this social hierarchical, hierarchical like status. And if you claim that that's unjust, that's not right, that's not fair, then you have to be willing to constantly, going back to that word constant, you have to be willing to constantly do the work, James. Because if you don't, the consequences for that group you claim to support, they suffer. But guess who doesn't suffer? You don't as the white person, you don't suffer one bit because you get to decide when you want to do the work. We wake up every single day and have to live the reality we live. We have to constantly do the work. We're on a podcast right now, having a conversation about it, trying to just raise consciousness and, and, and push the needle, right? We have to constantly do this work. They get to decide when they want to do the work. I want to talk about the, the future, right? In, in the sense that say there's a community that has worked with an individual or an entity that was performative, right? And it's known, it's clear. Like they did not help in the way that they said that they were. Say down the line, someone shows up who wants to be an authentic ally. Right. How do we go about reconciling that? You know, when I've been, you know, mistreated, I'm yeah. holding on to those feelings. I'm holding on to that experience. How do I reconcile that? And also how does the new ally reconcile that? I think first and foremost, acknowledgement. When you're talking about the new ally, someone wants to come in, they wanna put in work, you know, but they know that there have been people before them that have kind of like, you know, played around with allyship as a part of their identity. I think acknowledging, hey, like I know that there have been people that may have come and gone that is not serious about this, but this is what I plan to do. This is what I want to do and watching them do the work, right? So let's take allyship out of the conversation for a second, right? Let's break this down. You're in a relationship. You've been, you know, um, abused, mistreated, you know, and you get out of that relationship because it's not working for you. Okay, I can't do this anymore. Now, I think it's unhealthy to decide I'm never gonna get in a relationship again. Right. I mean, you can do that, but I think that it's counterproductive to, you know, living a healthy life. But what you do is you learn from your mistakes, the role that you play, possibly 
the role that they played. And you decide that I'm not going to not love again. I'm not going to not, you know, give another person a shot in a relationship with me, but I'm going to pay attention to action. I'm going to acknowledge that action up front is what is needed. I'm going to speak openly about what I need from you. And that's what this conversation is about right now, James, that we're talking about what we need from the ally. So saying very explicitly, not dancing around any feelings about, this is what I need from you. Can you offer this? Is, is that what you're willing to offer? What, what can you offer? Okay, this is what we would need for you to do based on your privilege, based on your positionality, based on your job and your connections to people in the community or whatever, your associations with this organization or group. This is what we need from you. Are you willing to do that? Are you capable of doing that? And having those conversations upright, out front, and, and, and this whole idea of trying not to say things or do things to make people uncomfortable, we gotta get uncomfortable. That's the way anything has ever changed or evolved is getting uncomfortable. I think that's the way, James, that we reconcile by keeping it straight. Like we say, keeping it all the way 100. This is what I need from you. This is what you're saying you have to offer. Okay, let's make something work. And watching and seeing if those things come to fruition, seeing how consistent they are with their allyship. Because again, you said you were an ally. I didn't pull you into allyship. You said you were a part of the movement. You threw up that hashtag. You created that email. You put up that poster. You came out and marched with us. What are you consistently doing? And just calling it like it is, you know, being straightforward, being authentic, being transparent, and, and having uncomfortable conversations. Because it's because we gotta stop trying to make people comfortable. We have this expression in, in podcasting culture, and I mean, it, it expands across a variety of things, and we, we call it cooking, right? Okay. Major, you, you cooking right now. Like, you, you, you're getting all the points, and it's rare where I'm like, you know what? I, I don't have anything else to add. Like, you said all the things. You know, I'm, look, I'm trying to lay it all out there, James, you know, because it's, it's really a conversation that needs to be had. I mean, you had folks last year, I was looking down my, I think I was on Twitter. It might've been, it had to have been Twitter. It might've been Instagram. Hell, I don't know. And what really pissed me off, and this is when I really started going off about allyship, is it was these white people at the steps of the courthouse, some in some city during the George Floyd protest, and all them fools had their hands in the air, James, talking about, I denounce my white privilege. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that goes right next to the um the Kente and the Nancy Pelosi. That's Nancy Pelosi and the Kente cross on the up up there at the Capitol, out there looking a fool, James. Yeah, it wasn't a good look at all. And so when I saw, when I saw those those white people get on their knees and really think that putting their hands in the air and verbally saying, I denounce my white privilege. They really thought, and I'm looking at the video and I've replayed it several times, like they really think that they're doing something. Because once you get up off your knees and you go to sleep and you wake up the next day, the next week, you are still walking around with that white privilege. What are you going to do? All this performance of I'm on my knees and I'm denouncing it. You ain't denounced shit. 
through action, you can show that you understand your white privilege, but you can't denounce it. That's not the way American society is set up. And it's, it's an insult to my intelligence and to the movement and all the people who are truly marginalized and oppressed for you to be down on your knees playing like that. Look, I done got mad. <laughs> so let's, let's shift slightly, right? Because I okay. know we, we've centered this conversation around race because race, race first is typically the way I do my my work absolutely there's there's a way that in other facets and positions that we you and i black folk can be allies so recommendations that you have for all of us to become better allies i think the recommendation is doing exactly what we're expecting from other from from white folks right continue to do the work and move with action I think that, I mean, I think it's really simple, James. I can't ask you to do something for me that I'm not willing to do for somebody else. Uh How Uh fair is that? I can't ask you to donate money, to donate time, to put your money where your mouth is or to get up and move and to to, to talk to your senators and your house of representatives or to write letters to this or to do. I can't ask you to do that, saying that it's your responsibility if I'm not willing to do the same thing, if I'm not willing to put in the work, to get uncomfortable, to try to learn, to sit back and listen, to acknowledge when I have power or privilege in a situation and, and give that space to someone else. So I think the same thing that I'm asking or that I'm saying should be given from those who call themselves allies to the black movement, whenever black people, like you said, you and I, when we decide we want to get involved or become allies or accomplices is a term that's being used as well as opposed to ally. We have to be willing to do those same things. I don't think I've heard accomplice. I got some some mixed feelings on that. I do too. And I I feel where you're coming from with that because accomplice is typically associated with crime. Yep. Right. And so you want to be careful with how you tread there, right? I don't want to say I want an accomplice, but if you take, if you think about accomplice at its root, it's someone who is willing to join you and take the risk, right? So- And, 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 and I hate to use this example because again, accomplice is typically associated with a crime, but if I'm going to go do something, I don't want nobody to say, oh, good luck. If I'm going, I'm going to just say it. If I'm going to rob a bank, right? I don't want somebody on my side who's going to say, oh, good luck. I'm wishing you the best. Hope you get out in time. <laughs> you got to ride with me. I need somebody that's going to say, hey, you need the keys to the safe? I got, I got access. Hey, you need to know where the cameras are? You need to you need a getaway. That's what we need. Somebody who wants to do the work and not just wish you well. And so I want to be clear, like I know accomplice is associated with crime. And then you talk about like blackness and in the movement, and then you use accomplice, and then there's this um this trope and this 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 stereotype, I guess, that is kind of like underlying there. But you got to remove that and say, okay, well, what does an accomplice do? They take the risk with you. And I think that is really what is being highlighted here. Who's gonna take the risk with me? Who's gonna put in the work? I don't want you wishing me well or hoping that I I get out on top. I want you to get dirty with me. Put your shoes on, lace them up, let's go. That's a word. That Okay, <laughs> okay, it's, it's growing on me, but okay, is, okay. when you first said, I'm like, accomplice, way. But no, no, yeah. you, you bring up a valid point of like, accomplices are willing to do the work too, right? Yeah. Like, 
almost at this point, I know we're wrapping up the pod. It's like, I'd rather you be an accomplice than an ally because an ally might just stand on my side, right? You're right. not exactly doing anything. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I wish there was another term, you know, outside of accomplice that could be used. But then there's the play on the alliteration, accomplice, ally. So I think a part of it has to do with the A there. But like you said, it's someone who's willing to get out there and do it with me, despite the risk. They're willing to take the risk with me. I want you to be my accomplice in this movement, not my ally with a hashtag or a bumper sticker or a poster up or with a, a, a banner on your website. I want you to do something. If you stay, and I want to reiterate this, James, before we wrap up, we're talking about people who themselves identify as an ally. I'm not trying to convince anybody to be an ally. I'm not asking white people for anything. I'm saying, if that's what you say you are, then show up, speak up, stand up, but also sit down when it's time. Be quiet and listen and learn. Do the work, move. It's a movement, not a standment, not a silent mint, not a conditionality mint. We're moving, we're trying to move. And so how you gonna move with me? Oh. Don't say nothing else. Leave them with that. <laughs> Leave them with that. <laughs> now, Deja, I appreciate you. Let people know how they can keep up with you, continue this conversation, not necessarily talking to allies, saying, how can I be an ally, but really continue the conversation of authenticity. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, on Twitter, I'm uh, D Rollins underscore, my last name, R-O-L-L-I-N-S, D Rollins underscore on Twitter. You can follow me there um, on Instagram. Uh, I'm underscore Deja Rollins, right? My first name, last name. And then on Facebook, just Deja D. Rollins. And so you'll see me with my, my little fro and my little high yellow shirts. Um, and um, I'm always open and willing to have, you know, dialogue and to learn uh, with and from others. Because I'm still a student myself, James. You know, I got a lot to learn. I don't try to sit here and, and, and talk as if I have all the answers or I know, but I am Black and I've been Black you know, for 31 years. And so I do have something to offer to the conversation. Um, and so, yeah, uh, still learning and still developing myself uh, as a student, as a scholar. So I, I think it's important for me to, you know, put that out there as well. No, I appreciate that. Deja, you, you've added so much to the conversation today. Like I'm almost tempted to like release this episode sooner. <laughs> um, <laughs> just because you know, I'm, I'm excited, right? One, because the research that you're doing around media and emotion and the ways that we show up in Blackness, and then to, to have this strong foundation and what it means to be an ally or to be an accomplice or an associate or whatever the word is that we're going to use. Right. I think being able to clearly distinguish those things and being able to say like, hey, this is the problem that we are facing if you want to be a part of the movement, this is how you need to show up. And yeah. there, I don't think there's enough people out there calling it out the way that it is, putting yeah. it on the carpet and say, hey, what you're doing is problematic or what you're doing is not adding to the cause. And so yeah. having folks like you out there in the world doing what's necessary, I'm grateful for you in whatever space that you're going to take up because you are needed exactly where you're going to be. I appreciate you so much, James, for the opportunity. Always willing to be here and, and do my part, uh, my small part, as a part of a much bigger, bigger uh, movement and situation. Thank you so much for having me. 
Huge, huge, huge shout out to Deja for blessing us on the pod. What stands out to me is that I've been around a lot of performative allies. And there's probably been moments where I've been a performative ally myself because I hold myself accountable in, in these spaces. But that's not to say that it has to end there. I think that's the thing that I want to drive home with the work that I do around Equity Matters, the work that I do around training, is that your behavior doesn't have to stay that way, right? Like once you've been enlightened, once you've been brought to this space where you understand like, oh, there's an alternative or, oh, what I'm doing is damaging, don't continue to do it. <laughs> that's, that's just childish. Make the decision to be constantly committed to changing behavior, to ensuring that people who are not included get a chance to participate, to remove barriers for people to participate like that. Once you have that knowledge, do something like that. It's really that simple. And just huge, huge shout out again to Deja for uplifting that because it's, it's about that action. It really is. It's, it's, it's not about the things that I say because I learned a long time ago, um, I can't hear what you're saying because I see what you do. And it's, it's, it's real. So if you found yourself at some point in your lifetime being a performative ally, today's the day to dead that shit. All right. So a few very quick updates. I don't know if I mentioned on the last pod or not, but I put together this it's one pager, it's, 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 it's brief, of anti-racism facilitation ground rules. And I posted it on Twitter and just said, hey, you know, if you're interested in getting this, just shoot me a note. And it was just out the spur of the moment. And people responded. And they used it. And they liked it. And so if you want a copy, one, you can sign up for our listserv. That would probably be the easiest way. The links are in the bios. Or you can just shoot me a note. That's equitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. And I will get it to you. I would love to share it. We'd love to get feedback, see how we can strengthen the document. Because that's that's what it's all about is if we really want to be committed to this type of work, we have to show up and we have to be open. So do those things. Speaking of being committed to this work, um, I'm still getting a lot of love on the I Got Five series. It was it was a lot of fun, and I just want to give a shout-out to my guys, Fat Five, for pushing me because they saw what it looked like before it became what you saw in the final product. And, you know, being able to see the transformation and seeing me being able to be authentic in a way that I, I don't typically uh, get to do. I feel like there's this podcast persona, and then there's, you know, James at Home persona. And so being able to better mesh those things and overlap, that's been like my goal over the past two years is really one, to get to know myself a lot better, but two, to really be who I am in all spaces. And so you've noticed the relaxed nature of the podcast as of late. It's just because you get tired of trying to be all of these different things. And so my encouragement to you is, is don't just, just be yourself. The training with the Cummins Graduate Institute is now live, Unmasking White Supremacy in Mental Health. We've already gotten a few people um, disputing or saying that I'm being divisive. This is not common. Usually I get it on the implicit bias side of things, which, as you know, I have mixed feelings on implicit bias. 
to me, it goes to that same vein of if you know that you have these things, the excuse isn't you have these things and that's why I act this way. It's, oh, I need to actively take a stance to reject and act against my biases, but that's for another day. Training is now available. Hit the link in my bio. Visit our partners at Cummings Graduate Institute. It is a great course. I think it's really insightful. I'm excited because we just, they gave me free reign and I took all of it. And being able to say things that aren't commonly said, especially when we talk about the history of the mental health profession and some of the roots of racism that still show up today. Check it out. Let me know what you think. That's what I'm all about. I'm here for the feedback. I am getting ready to head to Atlanta next week. Shout out to the A. I'm getting ready to graduate from my, uh, I don't know if we call it a program. I've been calling it a fellowship for the longest. Diverse Executives Leading in Public Health Fellowship uh, put on by ASTO. It has been a great year getting to know myself and developing my leadership capacity. Um, the networking and just the fellowship just really excited for the future of public health with the people that are involved in this program and we get to meet cohort two so we get to meet the next set of leaders um really excited to just fellowship and, and kick it also excited to be done because work has been working my ass so i think i've covered all of the major updates for today if you got anything for us please reach out catch us on social media that's at equity matters podcast on instagram and at equity matters pc on twitter um just like to kick it you know i've been really leaning into these reels it's, it's a lot of fun actually i i was hesitant for the longest time i was like i'm not gonna get caught cooning for commission because i want to get followers and then i stopped worrying about followers and just kind of doing my own thing and so it's, it's been a lot of fun Hopefully, the next time you hear me, I won't be as nasally. Uh, we traveled last weekend, and the baby got a cold, and then I got a cold, and then my wife got a cold, but it's just a cold, so we are grateful. Until next time, folks, you know exactly where to find us, and you know what we do. In the meantime, equity matters. <laughs> <laughs>